Good morning. I'll be reading from Exodus 12, verse 1 through 14. It's the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them for the, from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to... Sorry, I should have brought my glasses. <laughs> that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Good morning, everybody. This text is maybe the most important passage in the entire Old Testament when it comes to learning about the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. In fact, you can look at the entire Bible and find no better picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross than at the Passover. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we talk about the Bible and theology and Jesus in a little bit different way than the Bible does when we say things like sanctification, justification, holiness, atonement. We use these words that when you hear the word atonement, chances are nothing pops into your head. It's just an abstract word. and We, we know what it means. We can explain what it means. But that's actually not the way the Bible often talks about God and Jesus and salvation. See, the Bible uses images and concrete words like a lamb that was slain. God is a rock. God is a fortress. God is a refuge. God is a judge. God is a father. Our Savior is a lamb. See, we get a picture in the Passover of something that actually happened in history, but also something that you can readily wrap your mind around. That salvation is like being confronted with imminent death and being passed over because of the payment of somebody else. Salvation is like deserving to die and being spared. Amen. Salvation is like the difference between Knowing that you've been saved and that feeling in your gut when you have a guilt that is 
released. See, God orchestrates history in a way to teach us, right? Everything that was written was written to teach us, right? Then, in Jesus' day, now, until Jesus returns, we can always look back at these pictures and say, that tells us something about our God and about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this story, the central image, the way that the Bible wants us to conceive of salvation from death is through this lamb, through this little one-year-old perfect lamb. So Moses and Aaron gather all the families together, and after the nine plagues before this, Egypt has been completely undone. The plagues have come in, they've lost their morale, they've lost their livestock, many of them have lost their lives, they've lost their health. The, the magicians, as we talked about last week, and the courtiers are pleading with Pharaoh saying, please let the people go. Can't you see that Egypt is ruined forever? And finally, Pharaoh casts them out of this sight. And he says, I'll never see your face again. And in the parting word, Moses says, there's one more plague coming. And as Moses and Aaron gather the families together, they begin to tell them, God is going to free us from Egypt, just like he said he was going to. And here's what we're going to do. Every father, every dad needs to go look for a lamb. Every dad, go look for a lamb. It needs to be perfect. It needs to be spotless. It needs to be one year old from the flock. And you're going to prepare it. You're going to get it ready. You're going to sacrifice it. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put it over your family's mantle. And that's going to be the thing that saves us from death. Now, if you're an Israelite, you've got to be sitting there thinking, what's with the lamb? What's, what's the deal with this lamb? What's the deal with the blood? What, why, why is this all necessary? Well, the plagues on Egypt are devastating in their judgment on Egypt, but, but God from the very beginning had predicted that all the plagues are actually leading up to something. So if you go to chapter 4, right when God calls Moses from the very beginning, it says, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, and I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. But then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Right? So, so Israel, the nation of Israel, is a firstborn son of the Lord from all the families of the earth. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, this is to Pharaoh, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. See, the pattern of the Exodus from the very beginning is a substitution. My life for yours, your life for mine. My firstborn son or your firstborn son. That's the, that's the exchange that God is making in Egypt. Judgment is coming. It's coming on a firstborn. But the only question is, whose firstborn son is going to have to die? For the people. So the plagues come, and they are a commentary on this Egyptian culture, which is obsessed with death. Okay, the ancient Egyptian culture, the Oxford Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt says the Egyptians invested a greater portion of their wealth in the afterlife than any other culture in the history of the world. They were consumed with what happened after they died. The great pyramids of Egypt, the famous tombs in the Valley of Kings, 
all stand as testimonies to their preoccupation with death and dying. And, and think about this. To this day, the thing we think about with ancient Egypt are the mummies from ancient Egypt that are scattered across museums all over the world. This was a culture that was preoccupied with death and life beyond the grave. And so the plagues, we, sh- we, we shouldn't be surprised that the plagues begin to threaten everything that this culture holds dear in its rebellion against God. If you remember last week in chapter 5, the key question for all of Exodus is when Pharaoh responds to Moses and says, who is this God that I should worship and obey him? And all the plagues unfold to show us who God is and why he's worthy of worship. And so at the end, we shouldn't be surprised that the center of their belief against God, the center of their rebellion against God, should be challenged. Now, there's a lot of debate about when the Exodus happened, as you'd imagine. There's debate about everything when it happened in the Bible. But there's some debate about when this happened in the Bible. And there's some good evidence to put the Exodus almost halfway through the second millennium B.C., And right from that time, in fact, in the 15th century B.C., there were some German archaeologists who found in one of these temples to a dead king a book called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And in this book, it describes what they thought was going to happen when somebody died. So the person who has died, their soul would go to the temple of Anubis, and Anubis you probably know because he's the God that has the body of a man and the head of a dog or a jackal. And Anubis is kind of like the judge for the dead. And so what happens is the soul would come and the heart of the person or the seat of that person would be weighed on these two scales. And on one side is the heart and on the other side is called the feather of righteousness. Talk about pretty high standard. And if the heart is heavier then your heart is eaten by the god Amit, who is hind legs hippo, front legs lion, head of a crocodile. Very scary looking guy. And if the heart weighs more than the feather, he would eat the heart and you would be annihilated in the afterlife. But if your heart was righteous and the feather weighed more than the heart, you would be welcomed into the afterlife forever. So we have pretty good reason to believe that this was the practice during the time of the Exodus, that a heart was weighed by what it had done. Was it a soft heart or was it a hard heart? Was it a heart that was set on doing good things or was it a heart that was set on doing bad things? And if the heart was even heavier than a feather, then you wouldn't face what you wanted to in the afterlife. Now, if you've watched anything on Egypt, you know that they weren't just consumed by death for regular people. They were really consumed with death by pharaohs, the king, the god, the deity over Egypt. What would the pharaoh's heart be like? Well, this last plague is a direct attack on the heart of pharaoh because, you know, all through this story, what's been the repeated refrain? And pharaoh hardened his heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And by the end, we get an emphatic statement that Pharaoh has hardened his heart again. His heart, this text is telling us, is so heavy, it is so hard, it has no chance in the afterlife. And the final plague, this judgment of God, tells us three things that Pharaoh's heart is found wanting. That the Egyptian scheme of what's going to happen has 
no power against this judgment. And there's, there's a great little line here in chapter 11, verse 7. There's what seems to be a very random thing thrown into the text. In verse 6 it says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before or never will be again. And not even a dog will growl against the people of Israel. Now this, this is fascinating. Not even Anubis, the judge of the dead, will be able to do anything when the Lord sends his destroyer throughout Egypt. See, the haunting message of this last plague is it's not Anubis or Amit or Ra or anyone else who weighs the heart. It is God who weighs the heart. This God of the Hebrews, this God Yahweh, is the sole judge. And even the greatest heart, the heart of Pharaoh, which will be weighed against the feather of righteousness, God says is hard and heavy and rebellious against him. But, you know, this is also a judgment against Israel. So there's an interesting thing in these plagues. You go back and forth, the plagues apply to Israel, and then they don't apply to Israel. They apply to all people and then just Egypt. And this plague at the end applies to everyone. This is a judgment on everybody. Everybody has the same criteria for this final plague. The angel of death, the destroyer, will go through Egypt, through the Egyptian homes, through the Israelite homes, and if it doesn't see blood on the door, they will pay for the judgment of their sin. The firstborn is the Lord's. Whether it is Israel's firstborn or Egypt's firstborn or anybody's firstborn, it belongs to the Lord. And you know, Israel at this point, they haven't exactly been that faithful to the covenant that Abraham made with God. If you remember back, Abraham is the head of this family that God is going to bless and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through them. But almost immediately after that happens, Israel begins to rebel. They worship foreign gods, they worship themselves, they take away from the worship of God, and they find themselves in slavery in Egypt as a judgment on the nation of Israel for turning away from God. So God puts forth a criterion. Somebody's got to die for sin. Somebody's going to die. And the offer that he makes for Israel and to the Egyptians, this is what we forget about the Passover, is there were some Egyptians that did this because they had turned and feared the Lord. But every Egyptian, even Pharaoh, had the same opportunity for a substitute. See, this is the great theme of salvation across the whole Bible. There's a sacrifice that must be made to pay for sin, but it's yours or somebody else's. That's the choice. In fact, this has been the case from the very beginning. So when Adam and Eve rebel against God in the garden and they realize that they're naked and they sew those fig leaves together, which last year at this time we went through Genesis tracing that theme, what does God do? He makes a sacrifice for them. He takes an animal and he sacrifices the animal for the sake of Adam and Eve and he puts clothes and skins on Adam and Eve to show that they are covered by the blood of a lamb. See, when Cain and Abel are making offerings to God, what do they bring? Well, well, Cain brings the harvest. He brings the leftovers from his field, but Abel brings the firstborn of his flock as a substitute, as a sacrifice, as a payment on his behalf for his sin. When Abraham has a son and God promises that all of the nations will be blessed through his line, God calls him to account for his own sin with the life of his son. And remember, this is one of the weirder stories in the Bible where 
God comes to Abram, he says, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, your beloved son, Isaac. And he takes him up to Mount Moriah, and he's walking all the way. And remember that awkward moment where Isaac says, where's the lamb? Do you remember what Abraham says? God will provide the sacrifice. And the moment that Abram raises his hand over his son, God does provide a sacrifice, a substitution. A ram that's caught in a thicket becomes the substitute for Abraham. But another thing you'll notice is through the Bible, the scope of these sacrifices increases. See, for Adam and Eve, it was one for one, one animal for one person. And then when you get to the Passover, we have one animal for one family. And and if your family couldn't afford it, you could partner with another family. But then when we get to the Day of Atonement, you get one lamb for the nation. But all of this is building up, these sacrifices and substitutes and the debt that needs to be paid and the IOU that's waiting for God to cash in is waiting for one sacrifice for the whole world, the blood of his son, Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed in all these stories how bloody the Old Testament is. It's like everything, especially if you're in a Bible reading plan, you're getting ready to go through like five books of blood in the Old Testament. You've got to wonder to yourself, why is there so much blood? We look at this like it is the most barbarous thing, that every day people are sacrificing idols. In fact, if you go to Israel and you see these old altars, you, would, you look at them and you think, those things had to have been just coated and drenched with blood. What is it with the blood? Well, God, from the very beginning, has told his people the life is in the blood, right? The blood is not just some biochemical thing that we can examine. The blood is the life of what's in it. So when Moses and Aaron gather the people together and they say, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take a perfect lamb and you're going to sacrifice it. And you're going to take the blood. You would have basically thought, take the life of the animal and put it over your door. By smearing the blood on there, you are marking it that the life of something has has been here to pay for this sacrifice. When you cross this threshold, the life of another has been given for this family. The blood on the door is a sign that a life has been sacrificed. The Passover, the blood of the sacrifice, is that one life has been laid down for another. And we get this interesting description that when the angel of the Lord, when the angel of death comes, he's going to be looking, not just for blood, for life. He's going to be looking for a life that's been laid down. He's going to be looking for something very specific, a lamb that's been sacrificed. He's got to see that lamb in order to know what's going on in this household. Now, my brother Tucker married a girl from Fort Worth. And if you've been to Fort Worth, or if you're from that area, you realize one of the staples of Fort Worth is Joe T. Garcia's. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Joe T's. But it's this great, amazing Mexican place. And so we went down to visit their family, and uh, we were all sitting around on a Friday night. They're like, let's go to Joe T's. This will be awesome. So we get in the car, and we go. And I couldn't believe it. We were like what seemed like a half mile from the place, and people are standing in line waiting to get in. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. We're going to eat at midnight. People are wrapped around. They're serving tortillas. I mean, people are like camping out basically in this line. You're going to be there forever. And so 
my sister-in-law's grandmother's with us, whose name is Mimi, and she's like, drop us off at the front. So there we are. It's about 7 o'clock on a Friday night. We pile out of the car. We walk right up, cut the entire line of people up to the front, almost like in that way that you're like, I don't know why we're here. Don't look at us, you know. And it was during COVID, and so when she gets up to the very front of the line, she just pulls down her mask, and the attendant goes, oh, Mrs. Fraley, oh my goodness, come with us. We cut the entire line. We walk straight in. They've got food at our table by the time we get there. We're eating, and we're in sight of the line. Like, you can see out the window all these people in line just looking at us, sitting down, eating. We're in and out in 45 minutes from this place. We're like, how did that happen? They saw the face. They saw the face of Carolyn Fraley. And I don't know what the backstory is. Like, I don't know what had to happen for you to have that kind of clout at Joe T's. But once the mask was pulled down, everybody snapped to attention, get these people a table, roll out the red carpet, get the food on the table. There was something about her that once they saw her face, they knew exactly how to treat us. Now, I had never been there before. They had no clue how to treat me as an outsider. They didn't even know, but I'm from Oklahoma. I'm not even from Texas. But because I was with her, And because they saw the face, the whole family got the treatment. And the Passover is the same way. The angel of death comes through the camp and comes through Egypt, and he's looking for a face, the face of the Lamb. And no matter what has been done inside, no matter who's in there, no matter what the background is, no matter what the specific sins are, no matter how long they've been believing, no matter if they've been good little Israelites or they just got really scared that night and they decided to go ahead and do it as an insurance policy, they're looking for a face. And whoever's in there, they get the treatment. The Passover is the ultimate picture, that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter if you cleaned yourself up or if you're an Israeli or not, if you're anything that might merit God's attention, the only thing that matters is the face in the doorway. Has there been a lamb slain in this household? So God tells his people, prepare the sacrifice, spread the blood on the door, And Leland Riken says the consistent message of the Bible seen in the Passover is that anyone who wants to meet God can come one way, on the basis of the lamb that he has provided. That's it. So before the whole foundation of the world, the Bible tells us, your father went looking for a lamb. And it had to be spotless. And it had to be prepared, and it had to be sacrificed. And the blood of this lamb had to be spread over your life to keep you from destruction. And when we get to the New Testament, we see in the Gospel of John that when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist shouts out to everybody around, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb had come. He was perfect in every way. He was without spot, without blemish. He had to be a sinless human being. No other human being could stand in the place because they have to pay for their own sins. They can't pay for the sins of another. But Jesus was perfect. He was fully God and fully man. He was a representative of both sides. And he was 
prepared. He had lived a life that fully completed the law that God had given. Even down to the very details, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, a suburb of Jerusalem, which between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, there are endless fields of lambs. And and those lambs are raised for the very specific purpose that every year at Passover, they will bring those lambs into the city of Jerusalem so that every family can select a lamb. You know, Jesus being born in Bethlehem is just a flex for God. He could have been born anywhere, but he's prophesied to be born in the city of David because he is going to be a perfect, spotless Passover lamb. If you fast forward through Jesus' life, he celebrates the Passover with his disciples. I mean, this is getting pretty obvious to every Jew who's reading this. Like, man, this is kind of on the nose. He's a Passover lamb. It's Passover. It's the Last Supper. He's with the disciples. And you know, Jesus is celebrating this same meal that Exodus 12 tells us they should celebrate into eternity until the true lamb comes. And at the Passover meal, you have somebody who's presiding over the supper. And Jesus, with his disciples, is presiding over it, and he takes the bread, but he does something really different than you would have done with bread. You're supposed to break the bread and say, this is the bread of our suffering. You're supposed to go back to Exodus 12 and say, you're going to eat this, you've got to have your cloak tucked in, your belt fastened, the sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, no leaven in the bread. This is a rushed, dangerous meal. But Jesus breaks the bread and says something else. This is my body, which is broken for you. And when he gets the cup, you're supposed to say, there's four different cups, and you're supposed to say something like, this is the cup of blessing, or depending on which cup you're on, this is the, bless, this is the cup of wrath from God's judgment. And Jesus says something different. This is the cup of a new covenant with my blood. Right? This is effectively Jesus saying, this is my life. This blood right here, this is the life of the perfect lamb which is given for you. See, the death of Jesus, framed as the Passover lamb, is the ultimate substitute. When Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is the blood of a new covenant, he's saying, my life for yours. Somebody's got to die. The payment of sin is waiting Your sins are hanging on you. Somebody's got to die. Either your life or his life. Either your lamb or theirs. Either your firstborn or their firstborn. And God said, I'm going to provide the firstborn. I'm going to provide the beloved son. And his life will be payment for you. You know, the, the, the similarities between the Passover and Jesus' death are interesting. But so are the similarities between the Passover, and the judgment at the end of all things. You know, the plagues in the book of Exodus are reminiscent of things that you read in Revelation, right? So you've got all these catastrophes, and you've got the sun going off and darkness over the land. You've got blood again from the Nile everywhere. All the blood that you see in Revelation, you get all the plagues, you get the judgment, and you get standing before God in judgment. See, the Passover reminds us that at the end of all things, there will be a judgment. And just like there was on the Passover, God will be looking at each life, not just every household, at each life, and he's going to be looking for a face. Whose life has paid for this person? 
See, the Jews took the blood and they put it over the threshold of their home because when the angel of death came, he would see the face of the lamb and pass by. And Jesus puts it kind of in a similar way like this. You can build your house on sand. You can build your house on your own merits, your own life. You can build your house on your own accomplishments. And the rains and the wind and the destroyer will come. And that house will have a great catastrophic fall. But you can also build your life on Jesus. You can build your life on the rocks such that when the winds come and the rain comes down and the destroyer comes, that house will stand. You can build your house in one of two ways. When the destroyer comes, he can see your face or he can see Jesus' face. And at the end of all things, he'll be looking for the face of Jesus. And everybody who has the face of Jesus on their life will be saved. They will be passed over. They will be welcomed in. Their heart won't be weighed in the good things and bad things. It will be weighed by one measure, whose life paid for this person. And if it's the blood of Jesus, you'll be welcomed in to the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven forever. So Jesus makes this offer to his disciples on Passover, the very same offer that God made to Egypt and Israel. Will you or will you not put the blood over your life? Will you or will you not dwell beneath the mark of Jesus? Will you or will you not have the face of Jesus over everything in your life? I want to read the way that this story ends. The Passover actually ends in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. So if you remember, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, you see John the Baptist set up our antenna for what's going to happen. This whole thing is about the Passover. Behold, the Lamb of God. And John goes to great lengths to show us that it was Lamb Selection Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And it was the Passover meal when he gave his life for his disciples. And when he hung on the cross, it was the evening before the Passover was over. And at twilight, every Jew everywhere would have been remembering that that night, thousands of years ago, the angel of death came through Egypt. But you see the Lamb return in chapter 5 of Revelation. And you know, John is part 1, Revelation is part 2. So it takes a long time to get this theme filled out. But behold at the beginning, and behold at the end. And I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's that's what we want. We want the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the conquering king. He will open the scroll and he will open its seven seals. And between the throne and the four creatures and among the elders, I looked up and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth to look and see. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were 
slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, every language, people, and nation. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked around, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Passover Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the creatures worshiped him and fell down and said, amen. That's our Passover lamb. He is our savior. He is our substitute. And his blood is over our life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son and for the gift of this picture which shows us in concrete ways, unmistakably, what we must do to be saved from the coming judgment. Put the blood over the threshold of our life. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that we could be included through his death in your kingdom forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we'll celebrate communion together, and this is a Passover meal. This communion is a Passover meal. And so when you come and you share.